Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. I am joined today by two incredible panelists to discuss the core foundational principles of resistance to beta-lactam antibiotics in gram-negative pathogens. So this episode is the start of a series of Breakpoints episodes over the coming months where we will cover several key topics in the gram-negative space. But first, we wanted to deep dive into what resistance is and to appreciate the core components and how different mechanisms of, re of resistance are going to impact different drugs in different ways. And so this is true within antibiotic classes and it's true across antibiotic classes. And so today we are going to walk through efflux pumps, porin channel mutations, target modification, and then enzyme destruction of the drug. And we're going to focus mostly on how all these mechanisms relate to beta-lactam antibiotics. We could talk for hours and hours and hours about every bug and all the different drug classes, but to, to outline these foundational principles, we're going to focus on the beta-lactams. I am super, super excited to deep dive into this with these experts, and so let's go ahead and get started. First, we are joined by Dr. Ryan Shields. Ryan is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at UPMC Presbyterian Hospital. Ryan is a prolific researcher in the gram-negative space and has blessed the world with the first reports of resistance developing in real-world patients for ceftazidime, avibactam, miropenem faberbactam, imipenem relabactam, and sifiderical. I think the only thing more impressive than Ryan's brilliant mind is how humble Ryan remains amidst all his accomplishments and how he approaches everything from bench to bedside with a patient-first mentality. Ryan's also been somewhat of my breakpoints partner in crime since the very beginning, and so I'm thrilled to welcome him back to the microphone. Ryan, hello. Hi, Erin. It's, it's a pleasure to be back and, and looking forward to this. Um, but before we get started, I think we're burying the lead here, because in case our audience missed it, I want to make sure it's stated on the record that this podcast is now hosted by an award-winning host. In case you missed it, Aaron was recently recognized by the IDSA as one of this year's recipients for the Clinical Practice Innovation Award, due in large part to her efforts on this very podcast and making it what it is now. Of course, this is just one of many recent recognitions for Aaron, including from ACCP and your alma mater, Auburn University, War Eagle. So as somebody who has the privilege of seeing what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, let me just tell the audience, this is just the tip of the iceberg for all the things that you've done to advance social media, clinical practice, and infectious diseases. So on behalf of our loyal listener fan base, congratulations, Erin, for your recent recognition. Thank you, Ryan. I would be much more embarrassed that you just did all that if you hadn't said War Eagle, which is, you know, warms my heart. So War Eagle, and thank you so much. Thank you to everyone that listens to Breakpoints um, and the nominations for those awards. It's really humbling and I, I really appreciate it. Okay, next we have Dr. Robert Bonomo, who is making his Breakpoints debut today. Robert is the Associate Chief of Staff for Academic Affairs and a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pharmacology and Molecular Biology and Microbiology at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. He also has an appointment as the Lewis Stokes Cleveland Vice Chair for Veteran Affairs. 
His research focuses on the genetic and amino acid sequence determinants of the enzymes that inactivate beta-lactams, or as we affectionately refer to them, the beta-lactamases, which we will talk all about today. Dr. Bonomo probably knows more about beta-lactamases than potentially any other person on this planet. He's published over 500 papers in the space and has been an influential fellowship director and mentor to hundreds of us in and beyond infectious diseases. I know definitely including me and Ryan. So if you've ever had the privilege to see him speak at a conference, Dr. Bonomo can break down these incredibly cool and intricate concepts in very easy to understand ways. And we are thrilled to have him on the podcast today. So Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. And it's great to be here and congratulations again. Uh, it's wonderful to have this time with you and Ryan just to talk about the things that, you know, we passionately embrace and, uh, 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 well, uh, you know, we embrace these because they're exceptionally interesting and we all know the importance of understanding these mechanisms, as Ryan said, and, you know, these are very patient, you know, our patients depend upon us and, uh, uh, you know, it's our job to not only treat them, to, but to understand how to treat them even better the next time. And, uh, you know, very fortunate to be here with you today, Aaron. Thank you so much for this invitation. Thank you for joining us. And I couldn't agree more that exceptionally interesting and, and putting the patients first is what we're all about. So let's get started and discuss the essence of gram negative resistance. Again, couldn't be more excited for this episode. This is really complicated stuff. And even those of us who specialize in this field can be tricked or, you know, really astonished by some of these complex phenotypes that we see. And I think the bacteria and the pathogens that infect our patients just continue to awe us, continue to challenge us. And we see, you know, things that don't make sense sometimes. And then we just see resistance develop even to our novel agents and even to combinations of agents. And that can happen quickly despite our best efforts. So just a constantly evolving, ever-changing field. And there's a lot to learn here. So Ryan, I want you to start us off today. Can you just explain, you know, globally, why, why do we need to know the different mechanisms of resistance? Why is that so important to antibiotic selection? Why can't I just go with whatever says S in the chart? Yeah, I think that is the very essence of what we do, Aaron. And ultimately, I'm of the belief that knowledge of mechanisms of resistance will help you prescribe more effective antimicrobial therapy for your patients. And we've seen several recent examples of this that underscore the very importance of specific mechanisms. So if we look at the Marino trial, for instance, we know that the presence of OXA1 with CTXM really led to higher rates of clinical failure with piperacillin tazobactam compared to meropenem. Now, that's a specific mechanism that was identified after the results of that study were published, but again, points to the very importance of a specific enzyme leading to clinical failure for patients. Now, even in the day-to-day -day practice, we'll see this in, in our hospitals. For instance, if you're encountering a patient infected with E. coli that had recent travel to, let's say, India, that's pan-drug resistant, including resistance to septazidine, maybe Bactam, and meropenem Bactam, as a good clinician that understands mechanisms of resistance, you're going to recommend a combination of likely Acetrinam plus something like septazidine, maybe Bactam, because you know mechanistically that patient's likely infected with a metallobetalactamase producing organism like NDM. So again, there's an application of knowledge of mechanism of resistance that goes far beyond 
susceptible or resistant and putting those pieces together is instrumental in what we do. It, it also helps us anticipate what's going to happen. Um, you know, uh, looking at an antibiogram is like looking into a crystal ball. And, um, you know, when you see a particular gram negative bacteria, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know that if, well, if I use a cephalosporin here, I could potentially get into trouble by triggering an, or inducing the presence of a beta-lactamase. So there are certain like thought processes that you do, you know, because you know what the antibiogram says and you can not only medicate, but also anticipate, you know, what the treatment pattern is. And it's always complex. You know, you have, uh, you know, the patient in front of you, you have the clinical epidemiology, you have age, you have all these different factors. But, you know, as you look at the antibiogram and, and you look at the pathogen that you're trying to do to treat, you know, it's medication and anticipation. Um, uh, you, 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 you figure out what's going to be the best path for you. And the, the other thing that I find very fascinating is that, you know, you know, bacteria evolve all the time and, um, you know, they're evolving in our patients as we, as we treat them. And, you know, there are all kinds of mechanisms of evolution that are going at play, but that matters a lot. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think really matters <clears throat> a lot is your local epidemiology as well, right? So understanding mechanisms and being able to put those into the context of the antibiogram, as you describe, is really important. But so too is knowing what's most likely in your hospital. We know mechanisms of resistance are regionally specific, but also they may be specific to individual units within your facility. And you have to have some knowledge of that to be able to prescribe antibiotics most effectively. The final thing I'll say where I think mechanisms are so important for the day-to-day -day clinician is it also helps you understand and recognize patterns that maybe don't make sense, right? So we'll come across these isolates that occasionally are like meropenem resistant and cephazolin susceptible. And everybody's thinking, well, what exotic beta-lactamase is this? Well, the most logical answer is the phenotype is wrong. And there's either cross-contamination or an error in susceptibility testing. And so you have to be able to recognize those scenarios just as well as the exotic mechanisms of resistance as well to know how to optimize therapy for your patients. A good example of this was the CRACKLE-2 study, where 20% of carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, carbapenem-resistance actually couldn't be confirmed on repeat testing. So we know phenotypic testing has its nuances, it has its limitations, but knowledge of mechanisms will help you put those into better context. Yeah, and yeah. what I also find, not only is it epidemiologically important, but there are two other factors. Uh, one of them is history, right? And, you know, we know that if you use certain antibiotics, certain things are going to happen. So putting the, the antibiogram in a historical context helps us uh, figure out what to do. The, the, the other thing that I think is really important is that when the uh, a clinician looks at the antibiogram, you have to realize that it's a bell curve, you know, that you know, things that are on the border sometimes, you know, could easily be resistant or susceptible. And there is a degree of uncertainty, you know, that, that comes with particularly borderline susceptibility results, the, the eyes, if you will, you know, and, you know, you have to be careful that, you know, those eyes, you know, are not invincible, you know, um, you know, those eyes really, you know, can, you know, and, 
the one thing I find is really illuminating is that it's okay to ask the isolate to be tested again. Yep. Please repeat yep. that testing. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> that's not a bad thing. You know, it's like, you know, you, you know, you, 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 you can't, you can act on information, but it's also good to be certain and to yeah. you know have a repeat approach because you will see these crazy phenotypes and yeah. uh, you know you, like you said Ryan I think so articulately you know maybe the lab is wrong and yeah not supposed to say that <laughs> <laughs> no I think that's a really good point because that common things are common and sometimes yeah. Ryan and I you know we have several colleagues we'll get you know screenshots of these crazy phenotypes and you look at it and your gut is like I I think that's just wrong. I think it's pan susceptible and you just need to repeat the panel. So that's a really important point. And we I think, this, oh, oh no, go ahead. No, we used to see this a lot with the beta like the augmentin, you know, uh, uh, you, um, I keep calling it unison, but ampicillin, sulbactam, amoxicillin, clavulanic acid. I know we're not supposed to use trade names, um, you know, but uh, you know, in uh, many times, you'll see a very uh, discordant, uh, or it doesn't make sense, um, a phenotype with a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combination, and you scratch your head. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's okay to please repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, so this is, this is awesome. Thank you guys for that background. From the majority of clinicians across the world, which means the majority of patients that we're taking care of, the only data that the clinician has access to is, is the phenotype. So the only thing they have access to is the culture and susceptibility report. But sometimes we are lucky enough to also get more information about the molecular background of the pathogen or what we call the genotype. And you've touched on it a little bit, but I think this is really important because some automated panels now can give us information about certain carbapenemases and we can know the exact enzyme or whatnot. But others like Ryan, you mentioned OXA1 discovered in the Marino study. Dr. Bonomo, I think you talked about in inducing AMP-C in, in species like Enerobacter. Those kind of live silently in the background. We don't have a really good way to, to detect those, but they're all important. So um, Robert, I'm going to come to you first with this one. So how does the genotype interplay with the phenotype for a clinician and do you think it matters if you have both? Um, and would it, you know, is it preferred to have both or is it fine to just get away well, with the phenotype? You're talking to somebody who's tried their whole career to integrate both of those things. So I will, um, I will uh, favor a, uh, uh, an answer say, yes, it is important. Um, but I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. And I, I, I hope Ryan uh, agrees with me on this one. And I think you do too. The more information you have, the better your decision-making process becomes. If I know I have an NDN or metallobetalactamase, and there are many, you know, and you know, I, I approach the interpretation of the phenotype very differently than if I know I have a, a TEM1 beta-lactamase that's commonly found in E. coli. I approach the patient differently. I think about monotherapy or the application of monotherapy. And, you know, I honestly, I, the minute I see a phenotype that, or a genotype that worries me, I call you guys up. And the, the reason I do is that I want to dose these drugs correctly. I want to dose them in the right setting. If I need to think about a combination, you know, you guys are going to help me. If I need to think about continuous infusion or prolonged infusion, all those factors really come in. And what I think 
and a lesson I learned is that, you know, we did a susceptibility test on a patient and it was susceptible to a carbapenem. And the molecular lab told us that a KPC was present. You know, we had to figure that out, you know, and, you know, we had a PCR up the gene, you know, we, you can't take that information lightly. Fortunately, we were, and this was, you know, a paper that was published, we were able, uh, with our colleagues in Detroit, who did a tremendous job with this, and kudos to them for recognizing this, um, you know, that there was a single, you know, nucleotide error in the gene, and it inactivated, it, it prevented a uh, premature stop codon, you know, the KPC was not expressed, and, um, you know, so carbapenems were okay to use in that setting, but I think that the thing I learned from, it elevated our level of care. We were more cognizant at the bedside. We were more attentive to the issues. And it also helps you is that if you know that a mechanism is potentially there, you're also very careful about the choice of agents you do, even though you know that mechanism is not operative. You know, you're, you're very careful. And I think, I hope that someday clinicians will have the opportunity to, you know, have a rapid phenotype, have a rapid genotype, and have help with assisting how to do the therapy correctly. That it's, you know, it's not just well put them on, you know, ceftriaxone. Um, you know, it, it's a much more complicated decision like that. And so I embrace having the genotype because, you know. It helps me, it, 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 it helps the clinician. And it's also important epidemiologically. You know, if you keep getting a hit, you know, I got a KPC in, you know, one ward and I have a KPC in another ward. You know, you start thinking about, you know, that very classic paper that, you know, was published where you had all those diagrams connecting the KPCs uh, um, uh, from Dr. Segre's lab at the NIH, that outbreak that was phenomenal the epidemiology that, that, that was done. I'm, I'm citing that as an early study. There have been others that have been just as good. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just add to that. I think, you know, we're now certainly living in this era of multi-drug resistance and gram negatives, but also in an era where several new antibiotics have been developed targeted towards specific mechanisms. And so you do need more information. You do need to know the specific mechanism of resistance and able to prescribe the precise therapy targeted towards that mechanism. And so I see many of the new agents as targeted therapy, meropenem, vapor-bactam for KPC, septazne, maybe bactam for OXA-48. You have to put those pieces together and that goes beyond your standard susceptibility testing, linking a molecular mechanism with a specific drug therapy is ultimately going to preserve the longevity of these new agents for the long haul. And you know, the 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 other thing is that um, for uh, I think phenotype genotype linking is good for some drugs, and you can take that home to the bank. Uh, for other drugs, you have to be a little bit cautious. Yeah. And um, so, but you know, we're learning that, and you know, you know. Uh, you guys know it better than I do, you know, how clearly complicated it is to make a treatment decision, you know, uh, on this. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I hope we get even better than phenotype genotype in the future. Um, and uh, I know that there are efforts that are being done by, you know, people like Professor Cesar Arias. And I know that there are efforts being done by the ARLG, uh, 
you know, that are going to try to advance our understanding and provide us with better information. I think that's a good point in that when you said there are some drugs that you can take it to the bank, you look at it, you know, the resistance mechanism there and others that you can't. And there are at least two foundational mechanisms of resistance where the the phenotype is very hard to predict and we can't readily at this point, unless you send it for whole genome sequencing, we can sometimes guess based on certain phenotypes if these things are present, but we don't actually know because we don't have a PCR to check for them. And efflux is one of them. So at you know the most basic of level, this would be the drug is getting into the bug, but then the bug has some kind of pump that is kicking the drug out. So the drug is removed from the bug before it's able to accumulate and, and kill the bug. So let's talk about efflux first as our first resistance mechanism. Is this something that, since we can't detect for it readily, is this something that we should be looking out for? Is it relevant for, again, we're talking mostly about beta-lactams right now. So is this a relevant mechanism of resistant for beta-lactam antibiotics and gram-negative pathogens? And I think we should frame this when we talk through the gram-negative pathogens for the rest of this podcast, we kind of bucket them, let's say in four main ways. So the enterobacterialis, we need to break into those that harbor an inducible AMC enzyme. And again, we'll talk about enzymes at the end, but you know those that harbor an inducible AMC like enterobacter and certain citrobacter species, and then those that do not like our E. coli and Klebsiella. And then we'll talk through Pseudomonas and I think Acinetobacter as our other common pathogens. So uh, Ryan, do you wanna go first and talk about efflux in the context of these four buckets of organisms and, and the beta-lactam antibiotics? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. And um, I think it's important when we're talking about mechanisms of resistance, um, particularly for, for new listeners to this, to this podcast, is to be able to speak the language a little bit, right? We're throwing out lots of acronyms and gene names and enzymes, uh, and they all kind of come at you in a hurry. So in the context of efflux, it's really important that these efflux pumps are made up of really three different proteins or three components, right? you have generally a membrane fusion protein that, that keeps the pump within the cytoplasmic membrane. You have then a cytoplasmic transporter, which is the protein that's getting rid of the drug. And then you have an outer membrane porn channel, which the drug is leaving through, right? So those three components all make up what we call efflux pumps for the most part. And there's a number of different efflux pumps that have been described. Perhaps one of the more common ones is the MEX-AB OPRM, efflux system in Pseudomonas, which is present in really all clinical isolates of Pseudomonas, but just expressed at different levels. And when you break apart those acronyms, MEX-AB, OPRM, MEX-A and MEX-B are the proteins that relate to the cytoplasmic transporter and the membrane fusion protein, and OPRM is that outer membrane porn channel that the drugs are leaving through. So that's how the parts fit together and describe the efflux pump. And you'll hear some of these things and read about them in papers. Now, in terms of efflux in general for beta-lactams, that's kind of how I would center the discussion. We see efflux in Enterobacteriaceae like E. coli and Klebsiella, and there's a specific pump that you'll read about. It's the ACR-AB Toll-C system. But usually efflux in that context is a relatively minor contributor to resistance. You're unlikely to see resistance caused by efflux alone in an E. coli, for instance. It's much more common that it's an efflux system plus a number of other mechanisms. As you move on to the other, like you mentioned, the AMC producing organisms, 
Again, you could see efflux there. Um, in fact, Citrobacter frondii does overexpress its efflux systems, and there's been case reports of increased efflux plus carbapenemases causing resistance to some of the new agents. But again, I would look at those as kind of minor contributors to beta-lactam resistance in general. Where I think the conversation about efflux really should be centered and focused is, is within Pseudomonas specifically. And we mentioned MEX-AB, OPRM already, because that is what we would consider to be a multi-drug uh, efflux system, and that there are several substrates for MEX-AB, OPRM, which includes Acetrinam, the penicillin, cephalosporins, and some carbapenems. That's one of the most important differentiations to make here um, for, for Pseudomonas specifically with regards to efflux is that there are differences even within certain groups of antibiotics. So like the carbapenems, meropenem does get effluxed out by the system, but imipenem doesn't. And it's sometimes important to differentiate those when you're looking at phenotypes. Now, what's also true with these efflux pumps in Pseudomonas is they have repressor genes. And so repressor genes, for instance, control the regulation of the efflux pump and increase expression. So these repressor genes, often when we see mutations in them, they lead to higher levels of expression, and that can lead to higher levels of cephalosporin and carbapenem resistance in Pseudomonas as well. But what's certainly true in Pseudomonas, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in this podcast, is there are multiple mechanisms often happening in concert. Right, so even though efflux might contribute individually to cephalosporin and carbapenem resistance, it's also happening in the backdrop of other mechanisms of resistance concurrently. I, I agree. Efflux is a hard notion for us to understand. It's a really complex system of proteins that are put together, and how the drug gets in through, you know, whether it's getting in through the periplasmic space or whether it's getting in through the, you know, uh, once it's in the cell and getting effluxed out, that's hard for us to put our head around as clinicians because it's not an easy concept. It's also not an easy concept for us to understand that sometimes it's, you know, there's a proton exchange that occurs with that, you know, it, clinicians don't think about protons all that much. And, you know, <laughs> I uh, love protons. <laughs> well, <laughs> text you know, right I was about, just thinking about protons you know, this a, morning. A, yeah, I woke up this morning thinking about protons. I talk about them all the time. Just, yeah, it, no, it, I, I know, don't. It's a hard thing. But I think to your point, uh, in Pseudomonas aeruginosa, it's a very complex landscape. There are multiple efflux pumps. And I, I hate to say we don't understand them all yet. And, uh, uh, you know, they could be these minor efflux pumps that we think are minor that are also contributing, you know, uh, to that. Um, one of the most interesting things I, I came across, and this was in Acinetobacter, a long time ago, we looked at some of the isolates from Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And, you know, they had a lot of oxes in them. And, you know, uh, it's like, how do we explain some of the resistance? And, you know, the efflux pump of Acinetobacter is, you know, it doesn't have that many, it has a few, but they're also uh, important. So sometimes they, you know, an easy way to think about this is that efflux has a role in gram-negative bacteria in the lactose fermenters. It's there, but it doesn't hit a home run. In the non-lactose fermenters, it's there, and it's, you know, the designated hitter. You know, it, it's some. You know, it, it's a resistance mechanisms you you need to put in the context. And 
our labs don't test for efflux mediated uh, uh, resistance very well. You know, using the agents to uncover whether it's efflux or not is a little problematic for clinical labs. So I think uh, what I do is I, I, I tend to think of efflux as a non-fermenting problem. Yep. You know, if I have a non-fermenter, I, I worry about efflux. If I have E. coli or Klebs, eh, not so much. You know, and, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, the MIC moves a little bit in a, uh, in a lactose fermenter, but in a non-lactose fermenter, it takes you from S to I to R. And once it's in R, it's really important to, to do that. And um, I think some of the cephalosporins, particularly in Pseudomonas, get handled by these efflux pumps in that, you know, you mentioned meropenem. I think some of the cephems also get yep. extruded by that. So you have to be aware that that's a underlying mechanism. But again, even in pseudomonas, you know, penetration is, is primary. The other one is enzymatic inactivation. The efflux is, is there, but it's enzymatic inactivation is really important in, in pseudomonas. Yeah, I love that summary. I think that's a great point. So I think for our listeners, as we transition out of efflux here, I think we can summarize it by saying one, it's complicated, which will be an underlying theme. For pseudomonas, when we look at just the phenotype, it's really, really hard to predict the underlying mechanisms of resistance because there's so many going on in, in concert. But efflux is a player and it's something to think about and something to consider. And it can elevate MICs of both cephalosporins and select carbapenems. But for our Enterobacter alice, Kleb, E. coli, et cetera, even Enterobacters and Citrobacters, efflux is not as big of a player. It's not that it's not present. It's just not something we think about as a key mechanism of resistance. The last thing I'll say about efflux before we transition to our next um, mechanism of resistance is that we have tried to study efflux pump inhibitors as drug classes to try to you know, treat multidrug resistant organisms, and they all have failed, whether for toxicities or ineffectiveness. So um, like we said, this is a really complex system within the organism and within human hosts. And so this isn't something we successfully have a treatment for other than if it's present in very low levels and you have a reasonable MIC, there is the thought that you could potentially dose your way around it with giving higher doses. But in general, there's not a specific molecule, a pharmacological molecule that you can give that blocks efflux, so to speak. Gotta tell you a funny story. Um, yeah. I, I was a fellow many, many years ago. Um, you know, we tried to investigate this, Aaron, you know, and look at, you know, how to do this. And one of the drugs we tried to, you know, treat bacteria with was reserpine. You know, reserpine is supposed to be an efflux pump inhibitor. And, you know, like, no wonder we don't have drugs. These are all toxic, you know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> even bacteria had side effects from. <laughs> you can kill the bug and your patient. Whoops. Um, yes. So no efflux pump inhibitors that we know of. Um, so let's move on to the next. I guess it's not silent, but the next mechanism of resistance that we don't have already like PCR to say, yes, this is present. We really guess more by looking at different phenotypes and that is porn channel mutations. And Ryan started to talk to us about this when he explained how these are structured within the, within the bug. Um, but porn channel mutations are super important because the drug has to get into the bug in order to be effective. And if it can't get across the outer membrane to accumulate, not going to be able to kill that pathogen. So what do clinicians need to know about porn channel mutations? And again, let's frame this in the context of thinking about the enterobacterialis and the two kind of subclasses of enterobacterialis, the main ones, 
and then Pseudomonas and other non-fermenters. Yeah, I think it, it's important to first recognize that the outer membrane is a natural host defense mechanism against antibiotics, right? Is That's why the outer membrane is there for a lot of reasons. So for instance, if you're comparing E. coli and Pseudomonas, it's important to recognize that the outer membrane for Pseudomonas is much less permeable than is the outer membrane for E. coli, and that's a natural mechanism of defense against antibiotics and why many of our antimicrobial agents don't have activity against Pseudomonas because they have intrinsic constitutive efflux expression and then a very hard outer membrane to penetrate. Now, what's true about antibiotics in general that I think is a good learning point for the listeners is that in general, small hydrophilic molecules like the beta-lactams really gain access to the cell through pouring channels. They can transverse through there relatively rapidly. In contrast, maybe larger lipophilic molecules like tetracyclines or macrolides, they can pass through the outer membrane through passive diffusion and other mechanisms, right? So beta-lactams are somewhat dependent on these porn channels, which are these water-filled bores in the outer membrane to gain access to the periplasmic space to ultimately access their target at the penicillin binding proteins. Now, within the various bugs that we're talking about here, there are some porins that have been described and others that haven't. And that's the other thing that's important to recognize here is we talk about mechanisms that are so well described. One of the things I think of first with porins is there's so much we don't know about porins, which is similar to what we said about efflux. Um, so let me give you a few examples. There are two general porin channels we think about in E. coli. Those are OMPF and OMPC, or OMPC and OMPF. And we know if you knock out one of those two porin channels, it doesn't have a huge effect on the cell. But if you knock out both of the porin channels and the cell is deficient in both of them, then you can increase the MICs of beta-lactams. This is true in Klebsiella, where the analogs are OMPK35 and OMPK36, and to a lesser extent, OMPK37. So these porn channels seem to at least work in concert for a lot of drugs. If you shut one off, they can use the other, but if you shut both off, that's where you start to see a change in susceptibility. Now, that's Enterobacteriaceae, of course, and again, I would look at porn mutations much like I think about efflux, is it's likely a contributory mechanism, uh, but it's not the home run hitter, like Dr. Bonomo said, right? It's, it's maybe a, a that shifts you up maybe two to fourfold your MICs, but in the presence usually of other mechanisms, and I'm sure we'll talk about beta-laxamases uh, exhaustively in a minute. I think the clinically relevant application of porn channel mutations, again, go back to Pseudomonas, and there's a specific porn OPRD that we talk about and think about, and we know OPRD very tightly regulates the access of carbapenems into the periplasmic space. OPRD also can function independent of other mechanisms where you may see a pseudomonas isolate that's only resistant to carbapenems, but susceptible to cephalosporins. We would think of OPRD as being the cause of that kind of phenotype because, again, you're shutting off that access point for carbapenems where the other cephalosporins can gain access in, in other ways. Now, OPRD affects both meropenem and imipenem to some extent. Um, there are studies that suggest imipenem is more impacted. But also keep in mind, imipenem is more impacted by AMP-C, and so the MICs start a little higher. So when you add a porin mutation, usually that flips it over to the resistance category. Um, but that's a general description of, of porins. Dr. Bonomo, what would you like to add there? Oh, I was getting tachycardic, um, you know, because it's an <laughs> exciting area. No, it really is. Um, 
you know, and, and I think there's a lot of rich history here too that you know that that that, that needs to be brought brought to mind again. Um, uh, uh, when uh, Merck, you know, uh, made Imi Penham and, and you know put it out there, you know, there was a, a you know a lot of excitement about Imi Penham, and I, I think when the discovery by you know, uh, Dr. John Quinn in Chicago, that the OPRD mutation really affected imipenem's susceptibility. That was, a, in many ways, a landmark paper because it, it really brought out the importance of, you know, a porin channel in the utility of an antibiotic. And, you know, uh, uh, a lot of these beta-lactams, they, uh, uh, you know, they have that, you know, negatively charged carboxylate, you know, that helps it fly you know, right through the channel. And, you know, when you actually, you know, some of the better drugs like um, uh, 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 cefepime, which is a zwitterionic compound, has got a positive and negative charge, you know, that's even a better penetrator, you know, through uh, 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 through porn channels. Those are important things. And, but, you know, like, like you said, Ryan, you know, this was a long time ago, we did this study with the CDC, uh, Andrea and Damiani, uh, was a fellow in my lab at the time. And, you know, uh, Andrea did some really nice work with Andrea Huyer. And what they showed is that you have the KPC beta-lactamase and, you know, you had an MIC that went from, you know, 0.06 to two, right? And then you put a promoter change in the, you know, uh, in front of that KPC and the MIC goes to eight. And then you put a, a porin change and the MIC goes to 32, you know? And so like, you know, you have this nefarious orchestra, if you will, you know, that's playing this bad song, you know, that's making the uh, 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 use of these antibiotics and everybody's chipping in. But at the end of the day, you know, the porins, you know, you're right, you know, they're in the same air by themselves. They, you know, uh, but, you know, it's like having a good bench in a baseball game, you know, you, you want them in the game, you know, and, you know, they will work against you. And, I think the you know uh, uh, we did this work with Alina that's your at, at your institution now she's an excellent infectious disease physician who's going to have a great career I know but she looked at some of the pseudomonal porin changes and like you know she sequenced all these pseudomonads and we sequenced all and you and when we modeled the proteins you could see them you know, this was done a long time ago, but you can see how the, you know, you put a, an insertion there and the protein begins to change its shape. You put a, a deletion and the protein begins to, you know, and we don't understand all that. I think it's a very rich area. And I, I think the more we understand porins, the better we'll design antibiotics in the future. Um, you know, it's, but I, I think they play a, uh, um, Pseudomonas is the big deal, uh, uh, you know, for the porins more than E. coli and Klebs. And, you know, CARO is another story for uh, acinetobacter. Yeah. Uh, let me just add one thing to that that I think is relevant, particularly for a lot of our new antibiotics like Cepazni, maybe Bactam, and Meropenem, Baberbactam, which are already targeted against carbapenemase producing organisms. But then when you take that context that you mentioned of a carbapenemase producing organism plus a porn mutation, that may change the way in which you pick one of those agents over another. For instance, we, both, we know that both meropenem and Baberbactam gain access to the periplasmic space in Klebsiella through OMPK36 and maybe to a lesser extent OMPK35. But when you look at the molecular epidemiology of KPC producing Klebsiella, 
the vast majority of them have a stop codon in OMPK35, making the proteins not functional. So they're reliant upon OMPK36. And when we've sequenced OMPK36, what you find is a couple of different genotypes. In the wild-type setting, these drugs are very, very active, and the MICs are reduced significantly when you add vapor-bactam to meropenem or AB-bactam to ceftazidine. But there's two specific mutations in OMPK36 that are relevant, and you touched on one of them, an insertion sequence in the promoter of the gene, which really ramps down expression of OMPK36, which causes then an increase in MICs, not only to the carbapenems, but also the combination of meropenem vapor-bactam, imipenem relibactam, and to a lesser extent, septazidine imipenem. The other mutation we see is aspartic acid glycine insertion at position 134, which actually we've shown constricts the inner porn channel, allowing less access of the drugs into the periplasmic space. So those are two good examples of specific porn mutations that have been characterized to some extent, to your point, lead to structural changes or decreased expression of the porn that does have an impact on drugs that you might be prescribing for that specific multi-drug resistant strain. Yeah, and the challenge here is um, another challenge. You know, I, I agree with you. The IS element is very important. Um, the uh, another challenge is that labs don't do well identifying this. You, yeah. you almost have to be in the research setting. You know, a clinical micro lab is not poised, uh, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be poised to, you know, it, it has a job to, to do. It needs to tell you, you know, what the landscape is, but the clinical micro lab can't add that. And a lot of our even research testing platforms, unless it's like your lab or other labs around the country that, you know, specifically sequence those genes, you know, because you're asking the hard questions, it's not going to know the exact epidemiology of it. But I think globally, if you look at it from that, it is, it's not a big mechanism, but it's a very common mechanism. It's a very yep. common mechanism. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much for that. That was fascinating and really good explanations of these porn channel mutations. I think again, in a high level summary, we have learned for this similar to efflux for our Enterobacter Alice, it's present, but maybe not as relevant, although Ryan gave really good examples of where it can be very relevant in Klebsiella species and things like that. And then for our non-fermenters, especially Pseudomonas, definitely plays a role. And then similar to efflux, we don't have a drug to fix this. There's no porn channel opener drug that can that can correct this. Although I will say porn channel mutations do come at quite a fitness cost to the pathogen. So just like drugs get in, that's also how nutrients get into the cell. And so bugs can't live with mutated porn channels forever, or they have to come up with some other way. And so we actually see with pseudo very interesting things where you can have carbapenem resistant isolates, and then you remove the carbapenem exposure. They will revert back to wild type sometimes in that it's easier for the bug to live without these porn channel mutations. So that's kind of fascinating in and of itself. And the last thing we'll mention about porn channel mutations before we move on is that we don't have a porn channel opener drug, but we do have ways to circumvent this or at least try to. So cefiterocol was the first somewhat successful attempt at this. The mechanism of action of cefiterocol is that it gets into the cell via um, siderophore channels and iron pathways instead of your typical porn channels. And so we are getting better the more we learn. We're getting creative with drug development and trying to outsmart the bugs in certain ways. So all very interesting. Hey, Aaron, um, can I just add one more thing on porn no. channels? And I know I probably yeah, will derail <laughs> no, the whole can't. podcast. Well, first of all, I was listening to Dr. Bonomo and I'm thinking, man, I need to go be a fellow in his lab. 
I know, right? I'm actually like, I'm, I'm like, I'm moving to Cleveland. Bye, yeah. Ryan. It's, it's been fun. Um, so after the podcast, we'll have to figure out where to put our applications in for, uh, for positions. See that? Oh, as you were talking, Ryan, I think, um, you know, to be fair, to to be fair, you know, you described very nicely what the efflux pump and the, you know, the. The, the components of the efflux pump. And, you know, that's hard for clinicians to put their head around that. Plurins are not an easy thing to put your head around either. These are like these primary structures that, yeah. you know, fit, you know, in, in, in the, in, in the uh, 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 they form barrels, if you will. And, yep. you know, docs don't think about that easily you know it's very hard for us to envision how this thing is you know floating around in a sea of fat and uh, uh you know has these open channels and these changes really make a big difference yeah. you know so it's the elegant structures that you know we still need more to study yeah and and Aaron was mentioning this like this porn opener effect right which doesn't exist of course for drug development but you know, a bug we haven't talked a lot about is Acinetobacter, which does not have a lot of porn channels. The porn channels that are there are small and, and sometimes nonspecific, but a major mechanism there where we've tried to kind of open the outer membrane a bit more is polymyxin or colistin combinations, which we think do depolarize the outer membrane, allowing increased access of other drugs like carbapenems, for instance. So this might be a perhaps mechanism for why Using colistin to depolarize the outer membrane allows carbapenems and other beta-lactams increased access to the periplasmic space, where we don't have a per se druggable target for porins, there are ways in which you can manipulate the outer membrane. Yeah, and uh, those are interesting compounds, and you know, if there's time, we could go back to it, but they raise very fundamental issues, you know, you, you, you know, uh, you, you, you're modifying LPS, you know, yep. you're making LPS a less... Uh, uh, less of a super person, you know, to stop you back and you're making more, you know, and if you look at the early micrographs of polymyxin, you know, it creates these large holes and bacterial contents just fly out of the cell. And it's quite dramatic, but regrettably, you know, bacteria have been on this planet longer than we have, and they figured out mechanisms to become resistant to polymyxin and all those cationic antimicrobial peptides. Um, Maybe if we have time, we can revisit that. I don't want to get off course, but it's uh, we still got to talk about target modification and, and uh, enzymatic inactivation. Yeah, we sure do. And but it's a great transition. And Ryan, excellent point about the polymyxin. So that that's very very true in how they can you know facilitate opening that outer membrane. Um, but no, this is a good transition because polymyxins we think of well they are our you know last line resort for some of these pan resistant gram negative pathogens. And there, the mechanism of resistance to polymyxin is something we could categorize as essentially a target site modification. And so that is our third foundational concept of resistance that we will move into now. You know, the drug has to get into the cell. And so we talked about two ways that it might not get in as efficiently, either not getting through porin channels or being effluxed out. So let's say it survives that, um, or those are only present in low amounts. So you have drug in the cell for beta-lactams, they then have to bind effectively to their target to act. And for beta-lactam antibiotics, that target are penicillin binding protein enzymes. This is something most of us are very familiar with, with staph aureus, in that staph aureus becomes methicillin resistant 
by a modified penicillin binding protein via the MEK-A gene. So when we think gram positives, we're very comfortable with this concept of PBP mutations. Is this something that's relevant for gram negative pathogens? I will say in rare circumstances, it's clinically relevant. I mean, there are some like nuanced examples of say like Proteus mirabilis and Morganella, which um, imipenem for instance, doesn't have great affinity for the penicillin binding proteins expressed by those organisms. So you may see a weird susceptibility profile of like a Proteus that's resistant to imipenem. And that all comes down to penicillin binding proteins and the affinity the drug has for its target. But in general, these are not as relevant in gram-negative organisms as they are for gram-positives because of many of the other mechanisms we've talked about or will talk about. There's a few clinically applicable examples, um, you know, things that I think about in the context of multidrug resistance. Uh, we mentioned NDM and ACE-TRENAM combinations previously, something that uh, has been published somewhat recently that I think is a really interesting finding is a four amino acid insertion in PBP3 leading to decreased activity of ACE-TRENAM, AB-BACTAM activity. Now, if we rely on ACE-TRENAM, AB-BACTAM combinations to treat NDM and that specific mutation attenuates activity, that's all about target site binding with ACE-TRENAM specifically. And that could be very clinically important as NDMs continue to flourish in India and other parts of the world. And now the most recent epidemiology suggests those mutations are common in upwards of 30% of NDM in, in India. And we've actually seen them in Pittsburgh as well, which is a bit concerning. So that's an example of where penicillin binding proteins are important. Um, I will say the other places and times that I think about that are when I'm considering using Sulbactam for acinetobacter. I'm thinking, well, why is Sulbactam active? That goes back to penicillin binding proteins. Most recent studies show that it has good affinity for PBP1 and PBP3. Um, but if you change the expression of some of those penicillin binding proteins, you can get Sulbactam resistance. So that would be another example with acinetobacter specifically, I think about it. And then for Pseudomonas, there's like, as Dr. Bonomo said so eloquently, all these like very complex intertwined mechanisms. So like PBPs inter interplay with AMPC expression, and there's all sorts of things happening with peptidoglycan synthesis there. It's really complicated, but the thing that I would just offer the audience that might be clinically applicable is PPP3 has been thought of as a potential target for septolazine resistance. Uh, we've studied that and sequenced some pseudomonas isolates at our facility, and we find PPP mutations to be complementary but not explanatory for septolazine resistance. Usually that has to do with a target site modification or a, a, a mutation in the AMPC gene itself um, where PBP mutations are maybe complementary to that. Um, but Dr. Bonomo, what do you think about- Oh, no, I, I agree. Um, well, let me go back. I remember a long time ago, Brian Spratt, when he talked about the PBB mutations in Neisseria gonorrhea. And I remember being at ICAC at the time, because that was the meeting, and I was totally blown away. I was totally blown away. He showed the elegant genetics that were done and how these how these uh, PBB genes were modified. And he did similar work with uh, uh, strep pneumo, though we're not talking about strep pneumo today. Would you? But you know, it, it, the, the reason we can't use penicillin for uh, Neisseria gonorrhea is those, you know, in addition to the TEM1 beta-lactamase, it's also the PBB changes. And that's what forced us 
to transition to ceftriaxone, uh, part of the transition to ceftriaxone was that. Um, I agree with all those uh, uh, in pseudomonas, you know, very important for, for that. And there's actually even in some, when you look at Tazavi, Astreanem combinations for NDM, even in E. coli, some of the PBBs have that uh, ha have an alteration of four amino acid uh, uh, change there, and I'll check that when we go back. But um, I, uh, see the problem is is that uh, you know uh, penicillin binding proteins are dual functional enzymes, right? They're important for the synthesis of you know peptidoglycan. They have a you know a, uh, you know, and then they also help the sugar part of peptidoglycan. So they have a transglycosylase domain as well. And, you know, um, these things have a complex uh, uh, structure. Um, they can't, I, I've always looked at them, they can't mutate that much, you know, um, they, you know, because if they mute, then they won't do the job that the bacteria really needs them to do. So you can get insertion areas, insertion sequences or modifications that cause some changes, but it's not going to be at the same level as, let's say, for, you know, and the same impact because peptidoglycan next to DNA replication is the essential, one of the essential features, you know, peptidoglycan synthesis. And, you know, uh, peptidoglycan forms a, a, a helix around, you know, it's a fishnet helix around the bacterial cell and how those enzymes work together is important. But, um, you will see some, uh, uh, you know, some uh, reports of even imipenem resistance as a result of, you know, certain specific amino acid changes in penicillin binding proteins, <clears throat> but that doesn't usually ratchet up that much. Yeah, thank you guys. Super interesting. I admittedly, I mean, I didn't thing in pharmacy school, like I didn't think of penicillin binding protein mutations as a relevant thing for gram negatives. And now I know that as Ryan and you both described it, it absolutely can be, which I think is fascinating. And I think just um, continues to show us how bugs outsmart us and how we, this area of research will never go away, especially the ceftazavia-strenum combination for metallobetalactamase is what we saw coming out of cases in India with that amino acid sequence insertion is just fascinating. Um, so a lot to watch in this space. And with that, I think we're gonna wrap episode one here of our beta-lactam resistance and gram-negative pathogens kind of foundational mechanisms podcast episode, we have our fourth and final resistance mechanism to talk through, which is the beta-lactamase enzymes and enzymatic modification and destruction of, of drugs. But that is a huge topic in and of itself. And so I think lends to another episode. And so we will be back next week. And that episode will focus exclusively on the beta-lactamases beta to finish out our foundational resistance topics. And so with that, we, we conclude this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Aaron McCreary, and our featured speakers today have been Dr. Robert Bonomo and Dr. Ryan Shields. This episode was produced by Zara Kasamali Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited and peer-reviewed by Eileen Ahaskali, Joanne Huang, and Rajiv Shah. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials now and for the future.